I mean, look at the Beach Boys. They ripped off a bunch of Black artists and were able to make a ton of money off of that. And did the Black artists that they ripped off ever see a penny of that money? No. It is this sort of history that we have as people of color where our art is constantly appropriated and constantly used, and we are never paid for it. And businesses will never do the right thing unless they're forced to, right? Because what benefit does it give a business to say, you know, I'm going to pay you more money. Let me pay you more, right? So it's only in the wake of George Floyd have we seen companies come out and go, we're going to do the right thing. And even still, they're falling short. You're listening to the Transcend Podcast. I'm your host, Asha Wilkerson, an attorney by training and an educator at heart. This podcast is all about empowering you to build a business and leave a legacy. Here's the thing. The wealth gap in America is consistently increasing. And while full-time entrepreneurship is not for everyone, even a side hustle can change your financial landscape if you're intentional about using your business to build wealth. I've run my own law firm for over 10 years, and in that time, I've helped countless California businesses go from idea to six figures. On this podcast, we talk about what it truly takes to build a sustainable business and find financial freedom. Let's dive in. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Transcend the Podcast. I am really excited for today's guest. Her name is Kristen Roberts, and she is the founder and managing attorney of Trestle Law. Now, Kristen is a super important guest for us to have today because we're talking about intellectual property and we're switching the narrative from the scarcity mindset of let's protect and keep people away to thinking about how we can actually earn money from our intellectual property and how preserving your intellectual property rights actually gives you more of a leg to stand on. So Kristen implements branding, licensing, and certification programs, resulting in millions of dollars of revenue for her clients. A top intellectual property attorney in California, Kristen has received numerous awards, including the Super Lawyers Rising Star Honor for four consecutive years, the San Diego Daily Transcripts Outstanding Young Attorney Award, and the Best of the Bar for four years in a row. What does that mean? That means she knows what she's talking about. And not only that, that she's well-respected by her colleagues. That's super important. Additionally, she's an adjunct professor at her law school alma mater, where she teaches various intellectual property courses. Kristen's decade of expertise relating to monetizing company and personal brands makes her the go-to attorney for businesses looking to leverage their brands into tangible revenue. She's been featured in media, including Balance Bites podcast, Modern Mamas podcast, Harder to Kill Radio, Is This the Podcast Paleo, Fed and Fit podcast, Whole30.com and AlphaUniverse.com, amongst others. She lives with her husband, Nick, her daughter, Billy, and two rambunctious boxers, Ziggy and Zoe. So I had a great time recording this episode and I know you will enjoy it. But if you have any questions, let us know. Enjoy. All right, Kristen, thank you so much for uh, joining me today. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me today. I'm really excited to be here because you know you and I could talk forever. So I'm just excited. Forever and ever. Yeah, for sure. So our topic today, of course, is IP or LLC, which one comes first? And I thought we should start out with the basics. What is intellectual property law? 
So I always like to think of intellectual property as sort of an umbrella term for your overall portfolio. And your portfolio is usually going to consist of three key components, trademark, copyright, and patent. And then the fourth kind of side component, I want to say, is trade secret. And trade secret doesn't really get talked a lot about because, well, it's, it's secret, right? <laughs> so you don't want <laughs> So trade secret is something that you don't release to the public, right? You keep it really close to the vest. So it is part of your IP portfolio, kind of, but it's more of a true business asset than anything else. Copyright is anything that's fixed in a tangible medium. So there's sort of like an artistic sort of element to it, creative works, that sort of thing. Trademarks are source identifiers. So they identify the source of goods and services to consumers. And then patents are more like inventions. They have utility to them. So they have to be novel and non-obvious and then functionality. So that's sort of the requirements there for a patent. Okay. So a copy might cover like lyrics to a song or the words in the book that you've written or anything that's that's written, right? Yeah, exactly. So it's any creative work that's fixed in a tangible medium. And when I say creative, there just has to be an element of creativity. It can't be like a calendar or let's say the days of the week, right? You can't copyright those. And actually a case that's pretty famous is the Bikram Yoga case. So the owner of Bikram Yoga tried to copyright the flow of those movements. And the copyright office said, no, those are functional movements and standard kind of like body movements. So they're not create, they don't rise to the level of being worthy of copyright protection. But the way you express those movements, so the way you instruct, the way you, so if you have a certain sign off, or if you are, you know, instructing in a really creative way, and you have videos up online, you can still copyright those, you just can't own the movements necessarily. Got it. Okay. And then an example of a trademark might be like somebody's logo, or I think I heard that Abercrombie has trademarked the cologne that wraps out of this. So has Play-Doh. Play-Doh has trademarked it. So they actually, from what I understand, there, or there was, I don't know if it still exists after COVID, but they had like a flagship store somewhere on the East Coast, I think on the East Coast or maybe Midwest, and they pump the smell of Play-Doh into the stores and they've trademarked that scent as from what I've heard. And then there's also trade dress. You can also register trade dress. So like the Apple store, when you go into the Apple store, when you see an Apple store, you're like, that's it. That's Apple, right? It's that block. They've trade. They've trademarked their trade dress, so it's registered. It's protected by them. So any word, phrase, symbol, design, sound, color, smell, the key is that it identifies the source of a good or a service to the consumer. So when you see that, or smell it, or hear it, you know NBC, you automatically know. Oh, that's that, right? So that's the key for trademarks. That's funny. When you said NBC, I was thinking of the NFL little song that they play before the games. And then you said NBC. Okay. That's helpful. And then some examples of a patent might be like, I don't know if you've created a new lipstick tube or something like that, that, that works in a different way. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) So usually, so patents can get really complex because a lot of times people think that when you're registering a patent, you're registering, you're protecting the whole thing. When really it's, there are so many patents out there right now that more often than not, it's the useful, novel, and non-obvious component of the thing that you're making. So like you mentioned, a lipstick tube, but let's say that lipstick tube has like 
a heating element or a cooling element to keep your lipstick from melting when you get into the car, right? So you're not protecting the whole tube. You're just protecting the component of that that makes it unique novel and non-obvious. And so oftentimes what a lot of patent attorneys are trying to do is kind of find their way in and find something that is going to be patentable, but also that can be financially beneficial to go through that process, right? Because if it's not going to protect it, if it's not going to protect it in a way that's going to help you make money, then why are you going to spend all the money to patent it, right? Right, 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 right. Okay. That's super helpful. So why should we spend time, money, energy, effort trying to protect our intellectual property? Like, What does it do for me to register a trademark? Well, when you think about trademarks specifically, you're really thinking about your brand identity overall. And so there's a few things that you want to consider when thinking about protecting your intellectual property. Yes, there is the protective standpoint, right? I don't want somebody else using my brand name. I don't want somebody else ripping off my content. I don't want somebody else inventing this thing that I've already come up with. But if you just stop there, then all you're going to see when you are looking to register or protect is an expense. All you're going to see is defensive, right? You're just going to look at it from a defensive standpoint. When intellectual property is a saleable asset, it creates value and builds value in your company. So if you are ever looking for an investor, or if you're ever looking to sell your business, having strong goodwill in your trademark, having valuable content registered to you, those things all add value to your business. And then even apart from that, you can take that registered intellectual property and put it to work for you and have it make money through various channels, licensing, right? Collaborations. And all of these possibilities are much easier to put in place if you've already taken the steps to register it and lay that groundwork appropriately. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that. Because so much, so we spend so much time thinking about like, don't get my stuff. I got to protect my stuff and keep it really close to my chest and keep everybody out, right? Have that fence. But I just want us to start thinking about, especially folks of color who are so creative, we're doing stuff, but we don't necessarily know how all of these systems work. But I just want us to start thinking about how can we actually use the things we create to help us make more money. So I know there's got to be things out there that we just hadn't even considered, right? Like uh, I think earlier you gave an example when we were talking before we hit record, talking about, you know, an artist who might be designing something for a sweatshirt. And so now that company is going to put the image on the sweatshirt and they're getting paid maybe for the creative process. But if what else could they do if they had a, would it be a copyright on the, on the art? Yeah. So it could be, right? So let's say you have a shop that sells prints and you're creating those prints yourself. Collaborating with another company in a vertical market. So for example, if you're creating cards or postcards or whatever, or prints of your art and a company approaches you about, hey, we want to put your art on a sweatshirt or a t-shirt, that is an excellent vertical market because you're not necessarily going to want to invest in the infrastructure to come out with the line of, you know, it's, it takes a lot to launch a line of shirts and hats and sweatshirts or, and clothing goods. So this other company can come in and make that happen for you. But too often, what I see happen is the company approaches the artist and the artist doesn't know that they should hang on to the ownership 
of that copyright because yes that that artistic work would be considered would be subject to copyright protection so copyright is not just one thing it's a bundle of rights you have the right to reproduce you have the right to perform you have the right to exhibit you have the right and all of these rights are all about making money, right? It's about, and I hate using the word exploitation, but that's literally the word that we use in the law. It's your right. You have the right to exploit the things that you create to benefit you. And too often what winds up happening is these companies, these large companies come to these creatives and they say, hey, we love what you're doing. We want to do it with you. Sign our agreement. And that agreement usually says, oh, by partnering with us, you're assigning over all right title and interest to everything that you're creating for us. And they're paying them, right? So it's not like they're not making money, but it's the residual income that they wind up missing out on. And that is the longevity and that is the legacy that we're talking about here that people of color really need. You need to be the person who dictates how you're going to make money into the future. And as soon as you assign those rights over, you're cut off from being able to do that. So a better way is to come back to that company in that same example and say, all right, I like what you're thinking. Not only are you paying me a fee to make this design for you, but then I'm also going to get a cut or a royalty payment on anything that comes in that you sell. And that usually makes them go, oh, Right. right. <laughs> so, so you might get a no. And, and oftentimes this is the trap, right? The trap that we fall into as people of color is we look at it and we go, I want that money, like that payday. I need that payday because we're told as creatives and I'm a musician. So, you know, I, I, I also consider myself to be a creative, but as, as creatives, we're told, we believe this lie that artist equals starving that we can't make money from our art. And so when somebody offers you a payday, you are so excited to take it that you kind of go, well, I know that I'm underselling myself or undercutting myself. I know that I'm cutting myself off at the knees, but I need this now and the next one. I'll do it the next time around. But every time you do that, you're lopping off your ability to make long-term income off of your intellectual property, which is your livelihood as a creative. Right. Totally. I think about all the time about Michael Jackson owning his own catalog, about Prince fighting to own his own catalog. We've all seen and read stories about artists who have gone broke. Like, how could they go broke? They had five, six number ones. And it's because oftentimes it's the production company or I don't even know what the proper term is for it, but it's not the artist himself or herself or themselves that actually owns the rights to the music. Maybe they're the ones who are singing it. Maybe they're the ones who have written it, but it's whatever agreement they have worked out with the record label and the record label owns that. So 20 years later, when your song is still being played on the radio, that individual artist doesn't actually have the rights to that. It's the record label that's actually getting money time over time. Yeah. And that's, that's true. And that, and I mean, it's not just contemporary artists that we've seen that with. I mean, this goes all the way back to, you know, race records, all of that. I mean, it is, it's prevalent. I mean, look at the Beach Boys. They ripped off a bunch of Black artists and were able to make a ton of money off of that. And did the Black artists that they ripped off ever see a penny of that money? No, never. they were never. And so it's, it is this sort of history that we have as people of color where our art is constantly appropriated and constantly used and we are never paid for it. And and that needs to change. And companies, and you know, we're we're business attorneys. So 
businesses will never do the right thing unless they're forced to, right? Because what benefit does it give a business to say, you know, I'm going to pay you more money. Let me pay you more, right? So it's only in the wake of George Floyd have we seen companies come out and go, we're going to do the right thing. And even still, they're falling short. Of course, of course. And do, you know, do the right thing by whose standards, right? But when you own your own stuff, then you actually have the more negotiating power at the table. And sure, some people might get turned off because you are not giving them exactly what they want, but those just, they're not your people. They're not your people. Exactly. And those are, those are red flags that you want to see, right? So I get a lot of clients, whenever I'm negotiating a deal, it's always funny to me when clients go, well, I don't want to bring that up because I don't want to piss somebody off. And I'm like, piss them off. This is the time. You are getting into bed. You are signing a contract. You are creating a marriage. And when that happens, you want to know, you want to see the good, bad, and the ugly while you're negotiating this deal. Because if you, if this is how they are negotiating with you now, what is the relationship going to look like when you actually sign the deal, when you actually ink it? And they come to you and go, all right, give us everything that you signed over to us. And, you know, this has happened to me time and time again. And not just to people of color, but women, right? So I represent a lot of women-owned businesses. You know, so this is across the board an issue, but we see it most frequently in women of color, business owners, right? And so that's really my passion and where I excel and want to really kind of go, F these people, F the man. Right. Like, let's, <laughs> let's get them. Let's go. Totally. And that's why it's so important to register because when you have those registrations, there's work that this other side is going to have to do to get it over from them, right? So if you don't have any registrations, you're just signing a deal, it's presumed they own it. But if you have it registered and you're starting to ink deals and you're reading something going, wait a second, now I have to actually assign it, change the ownership, let the copyright office know, it's extra steps, it's extra work, it makes you think, it makes you take action. And so it sort of almost acts as a blockade from you getting in your own way, right? Right, right, <laughs> definitely. And also just to think about it, it's property, right? We call it intellectual property. That is a type of personal property under the law. So just like you own your car, just like you, you know, I don't know, own a stereo system, it is something that you can buy and sell. So do you have any examples of companies that you've worked for that you've read about that have been able to make deals off of their intellectual property where they've just sold it to another company? Yeah, I do. So I actually work with a company and they've told me, you know, tell tell everybody that you work with us. So I've worked with Whole30 for a number of years. They're a really big elimination program where you remove, you know, all sugar, alcohol, gluten, grains, all of that stuff from your diet for 30 days. And I did it and it was life-changing for me. And so when they came to me and were like, hey, we want to work with you, I was like, oh, okay. Yes, I was like, yes. Course. So I've been working with them for going on close to a decade now. And I had originally, when they first started out, they were still in the sort of, this is our program, these are our people. And I started floating the idea of doing a licensing program where, because companies wanted to put Whole30 approved on their products. Mm -hmm. And right. so I approached the owner about it and you know, she was like, I don't know, like it just doesn't feel... I don't know if that's something I really want to do. And I was like, I swear, this is going to be really good for the business. And so it ended up becoming a huge part, that licensing program. And they didn't have to create anything new. That's, mm -hmm. that's the beauty of licensing your intellectual property is, like I mentioned in the artist example, you're not doing anything different than you're already doing. You're taking what's already in existence and you're 
diversifying it and you're allowing somebody else to do the hard work and you're collecting a profit on it. And that is huge because nobody wants to have to create a new program, a new course, a new this, a new that. I mean, that's the work. That's the toil, right? And so if money can come with ease, intellectual property is a really great way to do that. And you made a really good point because it's intangible, but it is a tangible registration, right? It is a, a thing that you register. And so many times I get people that say, well, I don't need a registration because it just applies, right? I copyright, I, I, it <laughs> right. exists and copyright applies. And that's true. But that's like saying someone sold me the title to their car and I have the, the slip in my hand, but I've never let, I've never let the DMV know. I've never taken the steps to formalize the ownership. And yes, you still technically own it, but if problems arise, you're going to run into issues with enforcing your rights. And also, how do you draft a contract for licensing something if you're talking about common law ownership, right? So normally in licensing deals, you have provisions where you are indemnifying or you're basically saying, I'll take on the risk off of your shoulders. And a lot of times the owner of the IP is expected to indemnify or take on the risk of the person that they're getting into bed with because they own the IP. So if somebody comes out of the woodwork and says, hey, I actually own that, you don't want this contracted party to say, well, wait, now I'm getting sued? No, you defend me. But how do you define that scope of the indemnification if the intellectual property is indefinite? If you don't own it, if you're so you can't say, I promise to indemnify you against all claims if you don't actually own it yet, right? So you're just saying, so now you have to tailor it down differently and it becomes much more unwieldy. And then it becomes more expensive to do the deal. And oftentimes these deals happen fast. So you're getting people that go, hey, I want to do this. Let's do it tomorrow. And you're like, let me get my trademark. It'll take 18 months. Like, Yeah, too little too late, right? Yeah. And and so people look at you and they go, ah, you're not serious. And we people of color, we know that this is something that they do anyway. And so it's one of those hoops that I hate that we have to jump through, but it's an easy hoop, right? Registering something is not rocket science. Now you you could do it yourself. There, there's no requirement under the law that you hire a lawyer to register a trademark or copyright for you, but it's a pain in the ass. So most business owners aren't going, yeah, let me go figure out how to, <laughs> how to do this yourself myself. Most business owners go, let me call my lawyer up. I'm just going to have them do it. And so that's that's really where you know a firm like ours can come in or you know even finding somebody who can help you with it. Right, 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 right. Okay. I have a couple other examples. One of my friends is also an IP attorney and he was saying he was a part of this startup and the founder invested, I think, $200,000 and his role was to get the trademark for the company. Company wasn't doing that great, never really got off the ground. But because they had the trademark, another tech company said, we want this name and we want the area that the name is attached to. The company paid $250,000 for the trademark. The investor got all of his money back and they made $50,000 and they shut the business down and were like, maybe we'll try again (laughs) later, right? And I think that's a really important example because sometimes we think that we have to find success first before our business is worth something, before our name is worth protecting. And that is not necessarily true. There's another example that he gave me about working with this donut shop and they trademarked the name. Somebody on the other side of the country from New York reached out, an attorney reached out and said, hey, 
what do you think you're going to do with this? We have a, like a baked goods company that has a similar name. And so they are in negotiations for the East Coast company to possibly purchase the IP or the trademark from this donut shop that was supposed to start. Then COVID happened. They still have the name. I don't know if they're actually off the ground yet. And the attorney was like, hmm, this baked goods company is actually interested. Let me see how we can expand this trademark on behalf of his clients. So now if there is a sale of the trademark, now it covers more and it is more valuable. So it really is this tool. It's an asset for your business that is, I mean, it's a part of your business, but it is also something a little bit different than what you actually do. Obviously they go hand in hand, but you could have a business that fails, but still have a valuable trademark or copyright and still be able to make money from that. So I just want people to really think about how can you use what you're already doing and set yourself up for as many opportunities as possible. And even if you don't take them, just put yourself in position to win even if your success doesn't come because you've built this million dollar business, maybe you just build a million dollar <laughs> trademark. That's a really great point because, you know, Madam CJ Walker, that brand was built up hundreds of years ago and her daughter, her legacy that she left, there really wasn't much left because the company itself got bought and sold a bunch, but the trademark rights still got held onto by the family. And you can actually use trademarks or branding, you know, intellectual property for financing purposes. So if the brand has built enough goodwill, you can actually get money lent to you on the back of that intellectual property. And that's exactly what her family did. So she was able to do these big financing deals and get these investors to come in and get and do these deals solely because of that trademark that was built. So it's huge for legacy building. That is that it's key. And, you know, like companies like Nike, Nike doesn't really own anything except for a brand. I mean, they're not, they have manufacturers, they have this, they have that, but they're not like, you think they have like one factory where they're making everything out of, everything's being made out of China or other countries. And it's the brand, that's the moneymaker. It's the logo, it's the brand, it's the swoosh, it's the just do it. That's where they make their money. Right. Absolutely. So that kind of leads me into the, you know, the, the title of this episode is IP or LLC, which one comes first? So I have two questions. When do you think people should start thinking about their intellectual property? And then the follow-up to that is who should actually be the owner? Should it be the individual? Should it be the company that the trademark or copyright is attached to? Or should it be some other company that they start just to hold the intellectual property? I'm so glad you asked that. And so like, I'm going to give you the lawyer answer, which is it depends, right? Of course. I knew, um, I knew. It depends, <laughs> right? It depends. So really, a lot of times in a perfect world, I would see them start to look at them at the same time, right? Because if you're going to start a business, a lot of people go, well, I don't want to set up my LLC. And I'm sure you get this a lot. I don't want to set up my, my corporate structure until I have made something of myself. And I'm like, ugh, like that ugh, right. makes me so nervous because you're, <laughs> you're subject to unlimited liability. When you start your business without a corporate formation in place, you are a sole proprietor and you are subject to unlimited liability. And so that's, terrifying as an attorney, right? And you'll get, and I'm sure you've talked with CPAs before and you get the CPA answer, which is, oh, you don't make enough money for it to matter. Exactly. But that's not the only reason we set up corporate entities. We set up corporate entities to give you limited liability. That's the key, right? Because you don't want your personal assets attachable in the event you get a judgment against you. And then also you can bankrupt a company and not have to bankrupt yourself, which is nice. 
That's huge, right? Or affect your credit score if you do it right. Like this, this, and and this is something I think that folks of color really need to understand. I mean, all people, because I do get that question a lot. But it's not just an expense, right? Like just like intellectual property is not just an expense. These tools are in place to help protect you. And if you're just getting one side of the story, you need to talk to more people and talk to qualified people who will give you the complete picture or put those people in place to help you get a complete picture. Because it's not just, oh, I got to pay, you know, in California, $800 minimum tax per year that people think is a fee. Which is waived for the first year until 2022. So no excuse. Right. And it's a minimum tax. It's not a fee. But then also, okay, I'm going to have to pay to play in this business game. But how does it protect me? You have to pay for insurance, but you know that if you get into an auto accident, it's going to cover you and you're going to do much better in the long run if you have that accident with insurance and if you have that accident without insurance. Business structures are very similar. Sorry to interrupt. I will let you keep going. (laughs) That is 100% right. And it also kind of chaps my butt when people are like, oh, oh, I have my LLC. And then they're just commingling everything across the board. And they're just, and because a lot of times what they'll do is they'll go to their tax advisor or a CPA and CPAs can set up, they'll set up the entity for you, but not all CPAs are created equal. And so they don't necessarily know to advise them from a legal standpoint, which is don't commingle, don't do this, don't pierce the corporate veil so that when something does happen, you don't actually have that protection because you were right, exactly. showing your ass all over the place, right. like <laughs> commingling your assets <laughs> and your funds. And so you're absolutely right. I think, and I am not hating on CPAs because I always work in conjunction with CPAs. So whenever somebody goes, Hey, I want to set up an LLC, I have three partners. I'm like, Well, have you talked to your CPA about how this is going to affect you from a tax perspective? Because you're sharing the profits and the losses and you need to know how that's going to be divvied up on your returns, right? right? Right. And what that actually means for you individually, because you can read about it online, which is fine. Get your base online, but you need to have a consultant dive into your particular situation. So don't just get general advice or get it for understanding, but then go get the specific advice that's really important for what you are planning to do. Could not agree more. So I like business entities to hold intellectual property as opposed to individuals, but I don't mind individuals holding IP. But you also want to ask yourself, do you want to be named in a lawsuit individually if you were to ever get sued for trademark infringement? Now, 90%, I'd say, of trademark infringement suits don't go anywhere. They settle. I'd even say mine are like 99%. And I don't like to give percentages because it, it creates like ethical issues. But for the most part, I would say nine out of 10 of my disputes, they wind up settling. And so you're not going to see necessarily see your name on a lawsuit, but it could happen. So if that risk is scary enough to you to go, I don't want my name on a, on a trademark application or registration, then I say set up the LLC. But sometimes people go, I don't want to set up the business entity. I just want my trademark. I just want the brand registered. And that's fine. We can do that. And then oftentimes what I'll do is once that's registered, I'll assign ownership over to the company. So there is a way to take it from an individual and put it in a business entity. The more intellectual property you tend to have, the better it is to have a holding company and sort of what you're trying to do with it too. For tax purposes, you can have a holding company set up in like a tax-free state. And if all 
you're doing is earning royalties or licensing out, you can have those royalties get paid into that LLC. So you need to talk with your CPA about that. But there can be benefits in setting up an intellectual property holding company. A lot of big entities do it that way. And it does tend to create some demarcation between their business activities, especially if you have 50 investors and you don't necessarily want them to have ownership of that intellectual property too, you can have it held by a separate company and have that company license to the business. So there's all different structures and there's all different ways. There's no like one right way. It all depends on what it is that you're trying to do. But generally speaking, I would really like to see business entities and intellectual property considered at the same time because they do play off of one another. But if you're like, I can't do it, then fine. Tell me what you want to do and I'll give you a a path forward. But you're starting a business, right? I always say if you're starting a business in California and $800 a year freaks you out, then what are you doing in business? (laughs) Right. Like your goal is to support yourself. No one is supporting themselves on $800 a year. Right. Absolutely. Set yourself up as if you're going to succeed and believe in yourself as if you're going to succeed and you will. Yeah. I mean, I absolutely. And and that comes from that scarcity mindset that, you know, we're not always aware of ourselves thinking in that scarcity mindset. But again, you know, it's just, it's just $800. Like if you make any sales in the year, you're probably going to be paying more than $800 in taxes. And I'm not knocking anyone who is terrified of that $800 minimum tax. Right. But I do want you, just like Kristen's, I want you to start thinking about where can this go? How do I set myself up to be in the best possible position ever? And not how do I step a toe in the game, but try to keep myself from getting wet? Like you got to just, you got to go in and you got to be smart. And if you're not ready to do it yet, then take a little bit of time, save some money, meet with the people who you need to meet with and make sure that you have a plan so that you will be successful. I started out that way. I mean, I left my last law firm seven years ago and I had no clients. I left with zero, a book of zero, no money, no clients, no income, no nothing. And I was like, no one's going to hire me. Like, who's going to hire me? Who wants to hire me? Especially because I would go into court as a litigator and people would ask me like, when's the lawyer getting here? They'd see me and assume I wasn't legit, that I wasn't a professional. They took my look to mean that I wasn't to be in authority in the room. Correct. Exactly. And so that mindset gets, it is as somebody like me, that mindset gets, it gets to you. It gets inside. It eats at you. And it's something that we have to overcome. And so the first thing that I did was I hired a CPA and I sat down with my CPA because every, believe it or not, all of the lawyers, the old salty lawyers that I was meeting with were like, why are you setting up a corporation? Don't set up a corporation. Just just operate as a sole proprietor because malpractice, you're going to need, any lawsuit is going to end up with malpractice. You're going to be personally liable anyway. So why, who cares? Who cares? And I was like, oh, okay, maybe, you know, maybe I could do that. Maybe I'll do it. So I met with my CPA and I was like, you know, I'm just going to start out. And then as I grow, I'll set up. And she goes, that is the dumbest shit I've ever heard in my entire life. That is exactly what she said to me. And I love Shirley, my, my CPA. She is no nonsense. And she said to me, Kristen, that is dumb. Why would you do that? She goes, I said, well, you know, $800. She goes, Kristen, you are a lawyer. If you are not making $800 by the end of the year, she was like, go get a job. 
Okay. Like go work for a law firm. She goes, but you are going to do this. You are going to cut it. You're going to make it and you are going to succeed. So invest in yourself, do it. So she was the first person that I hired. I hired her on as my CPA bookkeeper. I did all of it. And at the time it was the biggest expense that I was making. And I was sick to my stomach making that. Now it's one of the cheapest expenses that I have in my business. And I'm like, this is great. Like I love my seat. I love them. They are, I sing their praises. I send them business. Like they're, they're the best. And so it will grow. You just have to have faith that will grow. You like you said, you can't dip your toe in and say, well, I don't want to get wet. Right. I mean, this is business. It's, it's scary, but there's room for you, right? There's not, there is enough to go around. Yeah, 100%. So I just have a solidarity story that when I was litigating, I would often go into the courtroom. And when I was representing criminal clients, I would stand in the attorney line that's in front of that the bar, right? There's a literal bar in the courtroom where the attorneys and the judge are on one side and then the public is on the other side. And so we had to stand in line to check in with the judge. And more times than I care to remember, the, the bailiff, the sheriff would come up and say, excuse me, ma'am, do you need something? I'm like, not from you. No, I don't need anything. Well, this line yeah. is for attorneys. Yeah. Thank you. Well, you need to go sit down. Mm, no, I don't. I'm in a suit. I'm looking, look, you know, the only thing that's different about me is that my skin is brown. My skin is dark brown. That's the only other thing that's different about me than the other attorneys in the line. And you don't, and you don't have a penis too, right? right. I mean, that's, that too. So there are oftentimes we're standing in these spaces and we know that we're in the right space, but the messages coming towards us are not confirming our identity in this space. So all that to say, like, keep going, keep pushing, you know, get around people who can support you and help you grow in that way. One last question before we go, how has entrepreneurship changed your life and do you ever regret it? Oh, that's such a good question. It has changed my life in so many ways. When I was first leaving my law firm, I didn't know what I was going to do. And I sat down, and my husband at the time, I was talking with him and I was like, you know, I, I don't, I, I think I'm just going to go find a job. And he was like, Kristen, your complaint is that you were constantly bumping up against a ceiling or running into roadblocks or being underestimated. And he goes, I don't care where you go. If you go to another law firm, you are going to experience that everywhere. He goes, the only way you can sidestep that is to do it yourself. He goes, it's going to be hard. He goes, but I know you can do it. He's like, you are tenacious and you will figure it out. And he was like, and I will be there for you. So just do it. And I was like, man, I hate that a man had to be the one to tell me that. But <laughs> like, damn it. Like, like, all right, white man, like, tell me what to do. It's right. fine. Like, but no, but really though, having that kind of push was really what I needed. And from the beginning, you know, I, I was really nervous. I didn't know if I was going to get clients. Like I said, I had no clients. So my colleague who I actually am in his building right now, and he's still my landlord. I mean, he's still somebody I go to for advice. He was my first boss at my last law firm and he left the law firm too. And I said, I don't think anyone's going to hire me. And he goes, well, I'll hire you because I'm running. I need, I have my clients that I'm taking with me. So I need help. And he goes, so I'll give you work and I'll pay you as a contractor while you build your book of business. And he goes, and you just tell me when you don't want my work anymore. And I was able to tell him by the second month, that was the push. Like that was the support that I needed to do it. And it changed my life drastically, time, energy, money. I mean, I made more money in my first year of entrepreneurship than I would have made in my first six years as an associate at a law firm, especially because I didn't go to a Harvard or a Yale or a Stanford or a Berkeley or a UCLA. I mean, I didn't even go to a top tier three school. I went uh -huh. to a school that lost its ABA accreditation last oh, no. year. Yeah. So, and, and I still, and I got a world-class education and passed the bar Absolutely. on the first try. But 
when that happens, they see the school that you went to and they go, eh, we're not going to interview them. Eh, we're not going to, we're not going to take a chance. And so entrepreneurship gave me that credibility because I could build it for myself. I could decide how I wanted to be perceived. And I could also say F you to the people that weren't, you know, I could decide what clients I wanted to take on that. I didn't want to work with assholes anymore. And I, it was beautiful. It was the best thing ever. And then I never regretted it. You won't regret it. If you are thinking about taking a leap and starting a business and you have a plan and you don't get so deep into the planning weeds that you just don't act. That would be sort of the the one thing, because I was like, well, once my website's up, once I have my the perfect logo, once I have my name, once I do it, you will never get to the point where you feel ready. It just won't happen. But you won't regret it. I promise. You won't. Absolutely. Thank you so much for this beautiful conversation. Can you tell everybody where to find you if they need a consultation or just want to follow you on your pop-in Instagram? <laughs> yeah. So my law firm is Trussell Law. I did not name my law firm after me. My name is not Kristen Trussell. A Trussell <laughs> is a brace frame serving as a support, like a train bridge that you go over because we build, I say we build a bridge from your brand to your bank account. So we help our clients traverse that bridge from branding to bank account. And that's what we do for our clients. Trestle Law, T-R-E-S-T-L-E, law.com. I'm also on Instagram, Trestle Law, or you can find my personal Instagram, uh, Kristen underscore Roberts underscore Esquire. Love it. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. So good talking with you today. You too. If you want to learn more about how you can build a business and leave a legacy, check out our online community where we dive deeper into these concepts. And I literally pull back the curtain to show you how I help entrepreneurs just like you build a sustainable business that leads to financial freedom. You can find out more at the wilkersonlawoffice.com. Hey family, I am so thankful that you are here listening to Transcend the Podcast. And I just want to make sure you know the best way to stay in contact with me. And that's through joining my email newsletter. So please head on over to the wilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter and join the list. I will tell you everything over there from what my offerings are to bits and pieces of information about how to grow and scale your business to self-coaching all the way to giving you updates on what the new podcast episode is. So don't hesitate. Go do it now. The wilkersonlawoffice.com slash newsletter. Thanks.